0: Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But this one little word gives so much grief. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That little word, the. It creates frustration for non-Christians and, frankly, consternation among plenty of Christians, too. That Jesus would say that he is the way, not a, the life, not a, the truth, not a. But when we talk about the necessity of the great sending, the, the compulsion for it, We really have to start here with these words of Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we're to understand that compulsion, that necessity for this great sending mission of God, the fact that he has sent out his church into the world in order to make disciples of all nations, for us to make sense of of why that is necessary and why we're compelled to do it, we really have to start with these words of Jesus. And yet, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a very pluralistic age, right? Where people are saying, well, wait a second, Christianity might be a way, but there are many paths to God or transcendence or whatever might be out there. To say that you have the way and the only way, well, frankly, that sounds arrogant, if not downright dangerous. It is way too narrow and constricting like a straitjacket on our religious and spiritual experience in the world. How dare you say that Jesus is the way, the only way? Get rid of your the and trade it for an a. That's the message of our, of our pluralistic world. But what I want to do today is to make a case. To make a case for Jesus as the way. Because the reality is that too many people hear this news as bad news. Including, again, I think some Christians. They hear the fact that Jesus is the only way as bad news. But what I want to do today is not just make a case that Jesus is the way, but also help show us why, in fact, it's good news. Glorious news. If it happens to sound a little bit exclusive. Especially at first. To start that case, let me show how it begins, in fact, by being very inclusive. Not exclusive, but inclusive. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. In other words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are separated from him alike. We don't make some distinction between good people and bad people, between religious people and irreligious people, even between Christians and non-Christians. The fact of the matter is that nobody comes to God apart from Jesus. That kind of levels the playing field straight away. It recognizes that every single human being comes from the same starting place, see? Before it is an exclusive claim, it is a profoundly inclusive one. We're all of us in the same boat, the same burning, sinking boat. And that helps to frame the thes that then come after that, okay? So Jesus puts us all in that same boat. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And then he says, I am the way, the way. Why is that important? When we were in England, we learned all kinds of different language, not languages, it was mostly English, Uh, but ways that they use English that's just a little bit different in ways that I appreciated. For instance, on their nutrition facts, on the food, it doesn't say calories, which I think for a lot of us has baggage now, like calories are bad. Instead, it says energy. (laughs) That sounds good, right? Why am I eating this whole thing of Oreos? I need a lot of energy. (laughs) Another one of those examples is when you would be down in the tube station, for instance, way down underground, and if you're like me, you might start to feel a little bit claustrophobic. And if you looked around for an exit sign, you wouldn't find it. Instead, what does it say? Way out. Way out. Which I appreciated. It's just straightforward, and it's cutting right to the heart of the matter. It's like, you're probably freaking out right now, and you're looking for the way out. It's this way. Jesus is the way and the way out. When you and I feel trapped and lost and hopeless, what do we need? We need the way out. He is the one who has come to bring us that way, to lead us back to light and out of the the suffering confines of hopelessness why we need him to be the way the way out then secondly he says i am the truth well why is that good news i think especially in our day and age where folks are so often wringing their hands about the rampant lies and falsehoods that are all around us and people are, are constantly asking the question you and i are asking the question who can i trust nowadays right who can i trust it's like we're standing on sinking sand, on quicksand. Where can I find a solid foothold? In such of a situation, what you and I need is some solid rock truth, and that's who Jesus is. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. It's good news to hear that he is the truth. Not just a truth, not just my truth or your truth. That's just a, another way of a being slippery and slithery. It's not a solid place. If he's merely a truth, that's only more quicksand. But if he is the truth, finally we're able to get some purchase on this life. Finally, we're able to find a place where we are able to stand and to breathe. He is the truth. And finally, he is the life. He's the life. And why is that good news? Well, because the mortality rate is still 100%, isn't it? And so often, as we might try to to give this idea as as humanity, especially as modern humans, that we're doing good, that so long as we have our technology, we're going to figure everything out, still the grave gives the lie to all of that. You and I are dead in the water, apart from Jesus. Jesus unless and until he comes and claims you and me as his own. And that's precisely what he has done. He is the life. When we recognize a right, our state, our sad, sorry state as a world, as human beings, then we can't help but hear it as good news. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, that man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. That man is a fool who complains he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. Or, perhaps more to the point, who who complains that he can't be saved by five rescuers. When you are drowning, when you are dead in the water, and one comes to save you, what's the response? Thank you. Jesus is the life. That when you and I were dead in the water, he has come to save us. And praise God for that. Now, that's why I believe it is good news that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and life. But there are plenty of objections that are raised. And I want to lift up for you three of what I think are the the best and the strongest objections, the ones that that you and I are probably most likely to hear from folks who aren't quite on that train just yet. The first one is what we might simply call the theological objection, which goes something like this. Wait a second. You say that Jesus alone is the way to God. Well, what about all those people who haven't heard of him, right? What about all those folks on the other side of the world who, who don't know, who haven't even had the opportunity to hear? I think that this is an, a fair and important objection for us to hear, even if, in a certain sense, it's becoming less and less relevant as the world becomes smaller and the message gets out further and further. But be that as it may. This is not an unimportant objection by any means. It's one that we ought to wrestle with. But also, it's not really for us to figure out. That's God's business, not ours. What is he going to do with all those folks who haven't had the opportunity to hear? He doesn't tell us. We leave it to him. What he has told us is that when he has come for us, he calls us to repentance and to faith. He always leads us back to that that concrete encounter with him and with his word. See, there's a certain sense in which for this objection to be raised, well, what about all of those other people over there? It's kind of a red herring. It's sort of a distraction from the real matter at hand. And you notice Jesus, when he's confronted with similar sorts of questions, he's always getting away from abstractions and bringing it back to the actual question right before you. For instance, there's the tower that falls in Siloam. And people are asking him, well, wait a second, what about all of those guys? You know, what was God up to with that? And Jesus' response, I tell you, unless you repent, so the same might happen to you. Or again, when, John see, when Peter sees John going away with the Lord Jesus, and, and Peter's like, well, what about John? What's going to happen? And Peter's response is, don't worry about John. As for you, follow me. It's not an unimportant objection or question to ask about what about all those folks who haven't heard. But when it comes to this question of Jesus as alone as the way, the truth, and life, that objection is a distraction. When it comes down to it, you have heard. You have had the opportunity to receive that word. What are you going to do with it? A second objection that's raised, so we might think of as the, the cultural objection, very common in our day and age now. And this one goes something like this. Well, wait a second. We live in these super um, divisive, polarized times. And we need to do everything we can in order to unite people. Unity above all. And that message of Christianity, that Jesus alone is the way, that that divides people, that separates us. And you know what? There's a lot of truth to that, too. It does do that. In fact, Jesus himself says, I have come with a sword. It is going to divide people. But here's the thing. Is the path to unity created by simply papering over our differences? Or acting as though, oh yes, we all believe the same thing. We're all on the, on the same team here. The reality is, that itself is its own truth that's trying to be imposed from above. It's almost its own kind of religious claim. It says, oh wait, all religions are equal. They're all the same. Like, that's not just... Uh, a a claim that Christians would have beefs with, right? The Muslim and the Jew and the Hindu and the Buddhist is like, oh, really now? Who are you to say this, right? The true path to unity is not forged by papering over the differences and pretending as though we're all the same when we know that we're not. And in fact, that can just lead to violence and to coercion. St. Augustine said, all wars are fought for the sake of peace. All wars are fought for the sake of peace. The gospel offers the path to true unity, to true unity, which is forged not through violence and coercion, but through a suffering Savior, by a Lamb who reigns on the throne, around whom all nations shall bow. That's the only source of true unity, even if it's not going to be fully realized in this age. And so I'm sympathetic to the calls and the claims, the desires for unity. And as Christians, we ought to seek to be uniting where and when we can. But not for the sake of checking our faith in Jesus at the door. Not if it means that we surrender the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, that gets us to the third and the final objection, which I think of as the, the personal objection. I say, yeah, we we come not through coercion and violence, but people will object, well, wait a second, no. Christians do impose their faith. look through history. There's all kinds of examples, and even in our own day, there are plenty of people beating others over the head with Bibles. We're all agreed that's not what a Bible's for. I know it's a big book. I know it can look like a weapon at times, but that's not what a Bible's for. And you know what? Once again, we have to confess, yeah, you know what? Christians have been guilty of that plenty of times. They continue to be, and indeed, for each and every one of us, I've probably been there too. We have too often tried to impose our faith, but we have to recognize that when we do that, that itself is a betrayal of the message and the one who proclaims it. Conversion, bringing people to faith, that's not your work or mine, it's God's gift. When we act as though we can force people into the kingdom, we betray our very king, the one who has sent us out, the one who calls all people to faith, not as an act of coercion or control, but as an act of love. And this finally is what necessitates the great sending. It's what truly compels us. The love of Christ. That's what moves you and me. That's what moves the church of God. It's not fear, certainly not animosity or resentment. It's the love of Christ, the love of Christ that fills our hearts and bubbles over. It's that love of the Lord, the King of all creation, the divine bridegroom who sends us out, not to impose, but to propose. To propose as a lover proposes to his beloved. Christ is the lover. He is the divine bridegroom. And he proposes to the world through you and me. The love of Christ compels us, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For we believe this, that for the sake of all, Christ died and was raised. For the sake of all, Christ died and was raised. But then that last note, that he was raised... That finally is the nub of the matter, isn't it? I want to end with this thought. Ultimately, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we're not having this conversation, are we? If Jesus is still in the grave, there is no life. There is no truth. There is no way. But C.S. Lewis said this, He said, I believe in the resurrection for the same reason that I believe in the sunrise. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. In the light of the risen sun, we are now able to see God's good but fallen world aright. And I know that for many people, when they hear the the of Jesus, it can't help but give them grief. It's infuriating, or it's maddening, or it's frustrating, or it's some combination of all of that. And I get it, truly I do, and I hope that you do too. When you hear it from the perspective of those who are outside the faith, it can't help but hear it as a frustrating thing. But listen, we grant that this life that we are in, the life in this creation is beautiful but also broken. It's glorious but also grievous, desperately in need of rescue. When we recognize that and we see that one has come in order to bring us back to God, we can't help but recognize that that isn't an occasion for grief but of grace and ultimately of gratitude. That God has acted when you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins and he didn't have to do it. He has come to us as we were trapped in the burning building. And he has made the way of escape, the way out. He has come when we were dead in the water and given to us the life. And when we were stuck in shifting sand and quicksand with no one to save, he reached down his arm and pulled you and me out. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And indeed, no one, not a single one of us, comes to the Father except through him. But through him. Every one of us and all the world finds passage back to the Father, the Lord who has come to save and to rescue and brought us back into Eden in the presence of the Father. That's the message, the good news, the sending that you and I have been entrusted with. But make no mistake, it's not our message to impose, but to propose. As a lover to his beloved, and God grant that by his grace, they say, I do. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.